2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. All right, all right, all right. Uh, let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. And tonight is a night where we're going to get a little bit somber with a cartoon film called Barefoot Gen. And before I introduce my co-host, I'll let you know that I initially thought that this was called Barefoot Gen until I watched the movie. And I thought that was because, you know, it's related to the atom bomb. And I thought that perhaps what they were alluding to was that after you've annihilated a city and killed a hundred thousand plus people maimed them uh that there are no shoes for a while after that you would think you know and so i thought that was why it was barefoot like generation like the generation after the bomb was barefoot as a result but no i was wrong uh my name is daniel elwood and my co-host is robert how you doing robert i just want to appreciate you admitting that you're wrong ahead of time so thank you for that buddy but yeah you're absolutely right i very well could have i didn't even think of that uh maybe i had heard of this movie in the past and knew about it, but it was about a little kid. But yeah, you're not you're not like totally out of whack thinking that it could be about the barefoot generation. But yeah, it's not. It's about a, it's about a kid and his horrific life and struggling to live through uh, the bombing of Hiroshima. Right. Now, uh, the other thing I want to mention is that this is episode 89 of the show, so the show notes and more can be found at episode 89. The other thing before we get into the Last Nighters portion is it is well over 100 degrees where Robert is and damn near 90 where I am. So if you hear those air conditioners that we've been talking about the last couple of times on the show, uh, that's why. They are cranked up right now because it is it is blazing hot. And uh, the one that I have is is actually a little bit quieter than Robert's, and it sits outside of the building. So I really, uh, uh, it works well for me for recording. And if you want to check out what that is, go to actualanarchy.com slash AC. It'll take you to the Amazon listing. You can check it out for yourself. I'm really, really pleased with it. Um, Robert, I think you've got one of those um, window units. Is that right? No, I've got a, a floor model. It sits on the floor, and then there's a you know like a tube that goes outside to a window, and it's it's pretty loud. I gotta admit, they're just they say that they're about I think about 50 between 50 and 60 decibels, and supposedly that's like a whisper, but it's yeah you can't not you can't not hear it. So it's there like talking dirty dirty into your ears for you. Yeah, it's actually kind of sexy if you think about it, but not so good for the recording. I mean, unless you guys are getting turned on right now. Which could well, be happening. I just you know, know. That, that, that's our cue to get into the Last Nighters portion of the show, wouldn't you say? So now we got to start talking about Barefoot again now? Okay. <laughs> do, 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 do.
Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, The Last Nighters. I'm Daniel Elwood, and this is Robert Johnson joining me to talk about the next movie up for bid on The Last Nighters, Barefoot Gen. And uh, 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 this is uh, a show that is brought to you by the Launchpad Media, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction. They have a bunch of exclusive shows, amazing content coming out daily. Check it out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. We are the Monday show, and uh, there's great stuff worth checking out. Uh, We're also part of the Libertarian Union, which is a group of uh, other podcasters that do content similar to ours, but not related to movies per se. But there's music and there's uh, current events, foreign policy, uh, legal theory, and and all the rest. So check that out at libertarianunion.com. And now that I got those plugs out of the way, and speaking of launching stuff in your direction, I'm going to launch Robert in your direction uh, before we get into the Google description on what will be episode 32 of The Last Nighters, Barefoot Gen. Yeah, um... Barefoot Gen, it's this uh, movie from the 80s, I want to say. I don't, I'm, I don't know if I recognize the, uh, the uh, animation house that did it, but these movies were, and there were a couple of them that came out, I want to say, well, at least this one and then Grave of the Fireflies, where this one was much more visceral, although both of them deal with, you know, young children, essentially, um, losing their parents, losing their families, and not having anything to eat. And this is, I mean, you're talking about a war effort on the part of Japan. I mean, Japan is this tiny little set of islands. And they're taking on the United States, you know, the allied powers. And they put everything into this war effort to so much to the point where they're just, you know, robbing the population of everything to eat. It all goes to the military for them to eat. And the the home people just, I mean, this is, this is a clear case of when a government goes to war, they don't just go to war with the other nation. They go to war with, against their own people, robbing them and starving them to death. And you see that in this movie. You see that in Grave of the Fireflies, where they're just scrounging for anything to eat, where you know a potato or an egg is like this incredible thing that they have and they found. It's like that. You know, it's like Venezuela. <laughs> it's like you know, yeah, eating the zoo uh, animals. Yeah. Yeah, so before we get too much further, um, why don't we do the Google information, and then we can get into our analysis, our real unconventional film analysis here on The Last Nighter's Show. So, Barefoot Gen came out 1983. Filmmaker Mori Masaki shows the effects and the after effects of the atomic bomb on the Japanese people. It came out July 21st, 1983. And just for a little bit of an additional amount of um, context, uh, here is the description surrounding the manga series that the film is based on. Barefoot Gen is a Japanese manga series created by Keiji Nakazawa, loosely based on Nakazawa's own experiences as a Hiroshima survivor. The series begins in 1945 in and around Hiroshima, Japan, where the six-year-old boy, Gen Nakoako, lives with his family. And that is the Google information there. Uh, there is a little bit of, uh, let me see here, uh, the IMDb stuff. 8.1 out of 10, 71% Rotten Tomatoes, and 7.9 out of 10 on the myanimelist.net. And 90, 90% of the Google users uh, approve of this film or recommend it. Uh, and Robert, I got to say, this is a, uh, it's a difficult watch uh, for sure, especially being aware of the precipitating factors uh, that led to this and the notion that the crimes of the government and the imperial leadership uh, on both sides led to this widespread suffering, um, you know, people just annihilated into shadows. And then the zombie-like radiation and, and burns and, and just horrific violence that was perpetrated against these people uh, in this aftermath. It is, it is really, really crazy. 
And it reminds me of the um, Battle for Liberty episode that we were talking about on a recent show where the question of abortion and I think a rape victim was brought up. And uh, his point was, in what society and in what morality would we impose the punishment on the innocent party? And I sort of see a parallel in relation to the decision to drop these bombs on women and children in civilian areas. Right. And although it's interesting, this idea of total war, I mean, you go back in history, you know, hundreds of years and thousands of years ago, and what you basically had were these professional armies of mercenaries running around getting paid to go to war. And then, you know, you also had, um, you know, like the peasantry would you'd raise up when you had like these landed um, serfdoms and that sorts of things. And like you'd have a lord and he would raise up a bunch of peasants to be like basically cannon fodder in his armies. But then you'd have like these landed knights. But you didn't have these, you know, the idea where you had to grind down the opposing nation in order to win a war. You would just show up on a battlefield. You'd defeat the other army and then that army would win and then they would conquer that land. Fast forward to like World War One, and you get to the point where you're grinding down, you know, the technology and the power and this idea of essentially total war is happening where you have to not only defeat the bat, you can't really like, you know, just have a clear cut decisive victory where one army just smashes another army. That just doesn't really happen anymore. It happens, you know, there are wins and losses and battles and that sort of thing. But you don't just smash the entire fighting capacity of Japan in one fight. You just don't do that. You There are big fights where you can destroy, like, a couple of, like, aircraft carriers at Midway and destroy much of their fighting capacity, but you still don't destroy, like, the entire fighting capacity of Japan. So you have to destroy, you know, you're, there's these battles of attrition where you're wearing down over years and years and years the, the fighting capacity of these nations where you, because you have, you know, this great wealth of the nation. You wouldn't just wipe out the wealth and the power in one fight. You've got this industrial capacity of all these people and all this wealth brought forth by the Industrial Revolution and other things and just the ability to fight. So, so on comes this idea of wiping out civilian populations, you know, the manufacturing base, the, the people that are making the bombs and the bullets and other things like that in order to significantly reduce the ability of a nation to carry out war. And man, it, it gets really sticky really quick because, you know, you're dealing with governments. And at what point is someone culpable in a war when, you know, you're in a factory and you're building bombs, but you're just doing that to feed your family. But, you know, I mean, it, it gets really sticky really quick and really messy. And I mean, the Japanese are an amazing people. And, you know, I've been listening to this hardcore history stuff with Dan Carlin and it's amazing podcast. If nobody listens to that, listen to it. It's great. But the way he talks about the Japanese people and their hardcore patriotism, especially in that time. Um, I told Daniel earlier last week when we were kind of talking a little bit off air, but, you know, he relates the story of these guys in the, I think in the Philippines, or I forget where, maybe it was in Indonesia, but I think it was in the Philippines, where, you know, these Japanese guys were being found in the 70s, still fighting World War II, because they were just, you know, they were told that to go on these islands and fight the enemy, you know, and, and 20 years later, they're still killing native Filipino guys. And so then the Japanese government has to show up and go like, yo, war's over, dude, stop. And they're like, yeah, right, dude, I believe you, totally. So they showed them all these newspapers. And they're like, this is not evidence 
that the war is over. They're showing all these newspapers about life in Japan. And from their perspective, the propaganda they were fed was that if the war was over, there wouldn't be a Japan. Because what they grew up believing is that everybody would fight and die down to the last human being for this war effort, for the emperor, who they basically see as the god figure. And I mean, just this the, the patriotism and the nationalism and the religion of the state is so hardcore in Japan. And, you know, from my perspective, and especially you see this in the movie, you see the, um, the father who was like, man, screw this stuff. This war should be over. This war is unwinnable. Why are we still fighting it? This is just terrible. So as soon as there's one guy, one guy that says, no, this is wrong, you know, this is this is immoral what you're doing against your own people. It's also immoral to murder, you know, people outside your country and all this kind of wars of aggression, of course. It's all mass murder. Well, inside the country as well. I mean, just murder in general is kind of bad. Yeah, yeah, totally is. I don't know, what, what did you, I mean, I really enjoyed the fact that they didn't pull any punches with the bombing, the animation of the bombing. I think this is this is pure statism. You don't get, you know, under an anarchy type world, a reason to go nuke people halfway across the world. You only get that with nations fighting for other nations, for stealing resources from other nations and ruling over other nations. You don't get that, you know, I hate that Shinji guy. Man, I'm going to go nuke that entire city. I mean, I know we talk about McNukes and Libertopia, but do you really think that people would just be nuking people halfway across the planet just because? I just don't see it. Yeah, well, you know, we talk about nuclear uh, nations or trying to develop nuclear weapons and how it's such a danger. And yet the biggest complainer of that is the only nation that has gone and actually used them, which I find highly hypocritical and quite ironic. But back to your question about how they portrayed the bombing itself uh, is pretty interesting because I think it would be very difficult to have gone through that experience and, and have any recollection of how it is. But, the, I mean, they really showed just horror, just destruction, you know, people's flesh melting off on just half of their face because they were turned one direction, you know, so the side that was towards the flash of light and the wave blast just melts away, but the other side is still there, you know, the shadow side. Um, and they must have been some distance away from the bombing itself because, from my understanding, if you're close enough, you're turned into a shadow. I mean, you're just, like, instantly vaporized. And the further out you are, the less direct effect you have, but the more radiation effect you know the radiation poisoning and and things like that uh but they did not pull any punches in the animation of this i mean they literally showed you know zombie-like people trudging along trying to get somewhere and then i think a little bit after that they were trying to help victims and give them water and they ended up dying as soon as they got the water now i I didn't understand exactly why that had happened. Do you have any insight? I, I have some ideas from researching it a little bit, but do you have any idea from your context why people were dying as soon as they had the water? Well, from what the movie said, the movie said that, or at least I think the mother made the comment, that the the thirst was the only thing keeping them going. The desire to quench their you know, incredible thirst. And then once that thirst was slaked, then they could go just, just instantly die. Okay, I, I'm done. I've, I've slaked the thirst. I had, I had one job to do. My job is done, and now I can die. That's 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 essentially what I got out of it. Okay, so it's like the core, you know, the base of the brain still keeping you going, like trying to satiate that super, you know, low thing on the Maslow's priority of, or hierarchy of needs. And so you're just going along until you satisfy that. I guess that makes some sense. I thought that perhaps that the water had become tainted and 
that they were already so irradiated that that was just the the thing to put them over the top. Yeah, I don't, I don't scientifically, I don't think that works out. I mean, water can get irradiated, I, I believe, but it's also a great disperser of heat. And uh, I don't just don't think there would have been enough time to really irradiate all that water. And what I mean, I think if you're maybe drinking the black rain that fell, that wouldn't have been great, of course. But I think you could. I mean, everybody in that area is massively irradiated there's no escaping that but i mean those people were so so destroyed i mean i can't you can only imagine your entire body your flesh is just cooked right off you're essentially like barbecued and and your meat is just hanging off the bone what what's keeping you going right and that's if you've survived past that point i mean the lucky ones were instantly evaporated or vaporized you know turned into shadows and dust yeah, because it killed, I mean, the estimates are estimates, but, you know, from what I've seen, and I believe the movie said that 100,000 died instantly, but then you double that for, you know, radiation issues with cancer and other issues like that. But can we talk about, you know, the idea and the decision to drop the bomb a little bit? It's not the most interesting thing for me, but it, there are a few points that we could go over um one was the idea that you're using this bomb to kind of announce to the world and announce to Russia that, you know, we have this massive weapon and this is essentially the beginning of the Cold War. Then you also have the use of the bomb to justify the money spent making it. I don't know how much money was spent making it. It was like billions of dollars in today's money. But there were a ton of um, a ton of, uh, you know, boondoggles and different things made. If you go and watch the movie Aviator, the... Um, what was it? The, the Hercules? The Hercules was one of those boondoggles. You know, he was making that giant plane to for the war effort. So to transport, you know, tanks across the Atlantic or whatever it was he, he thought he was going to do, maybe across the English Channel or something like that. But that never that never flew. And he was dragged before Congress to explain, you know, his war profiteering. But there were all kinds of projects in the works that never saw the light of day in war. Uh, let me um, let me pause you there for a moment because I I liked when he was pulled in front of Congress just for the fact that they were lambasting him for profiteering as you just said and he turned it around on them and said well actually what you guys put into this is only like less than a quarter of how much it's cost me so far I'm just so determined to get this thing in the air that I have put my own money in so to call me a war profiteer is ridiculous yeah and that's the best scene in that movie was him in front of Congress just roasting those congressmen. <laughs> Basically talking about how, yeah, like you just said, you know, you call me a war profiteer. Why am I the only one up here on this stand talking right now when there are far other people and during all kinds of other, you know, projects that never made it, spending all kinds of money? Never mind the fact that, you know, you're you're a you're a manufacturer of goods and you, you go, you know, and the government comes to you and says, hey, can you build anything? And you go, yeah, we got some ideas here. We'll show you our ideas in like, you know, a couple of months. And then here you go. Here are our ideas. Oh, and, and by go, the way, OK, the, by the way, they tell you, oh, whatever you were building, you can't build anymore because now we're on rationing and right, right. So you can only, we can only authorize we can only authorize you to build, you know, X, Y, and Z as long as it goes to the war effort. So you're basically enlisted. You're basically drafted. And so then you go and say, okay, these are my ideas. I, can, I got this giant plane idea. I got this rocket idea. I got this big tank idea, and I got you know this other idea. And they go, okay, well we'll take you know all these ideas. Okay. And so go, okay, great. Okay. I'll start working on them right away. And then I'll just need some money to get me going and blah, blah, blah. Well, the fact that he never brought them to term isn't necessarily any kind of 
hit on him. I mean, they were convinced at the time of purchase, at the time that they gave the go-ahead. So why weren't these, you know, generals or congressmen or whoever's making these purchases also brought to task? Like, hey, didn't you, why did you approve of these expenditures? You know, he's he's like a guy, and I, I'm sorry, we're talking about the aviator way too much here. We should be talking about Bear again, but this kind of applies. You know, he's he's doing his best. He thinks he's a patriot and he's doing his best to bring a product to market. Now, some of these products don't fail, don't, don't succeed. That's just the nature of the beast. That doesn't mean he's necessarily a criminal. Now, you know, uh, I would wouldn't say that you know if you're if you're making war arms today, I would say you're you're far more likely to be a criminal um, if you're you know selling these contracts to the government to perpetuate these war machines and that sort of thing. Um, but we could go down that road if you want, Daniel. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to take this conversation? Well, just one more point on this, because I think you were going to where, you know, they, they spent all this money to develop all these weaponry and they have to justify the spending. So that was one of the impeti or impetuses. I'm not sure how to say that. But for using it, you know, I mean, you've got this thing over here. You've devoted all these resources. And now if you don't use it, it's kind of like, well, why'd you, why'd you build it? So it's one of those, if you right. built it, you kind of got to use it. And didn't Truman say that, hey, we built the thing, we weren't not going to do it, use it? Pretty sure he said something like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. And then some of the other precipitating factors, um, if we want to just kind of continue on with that theme for a little bit, was that Japan was clearly defeated. The ability to project their military out into the world had been diminished significantly. And so getting a surrender or a ceasefire was, from my understanding, certainly within the realm of possibility. It was on the table. But the U.S. demanded an unconditional surrender, which is almost unheard of up until that point. And all the Japanese really wanted was, as you'd said, that their emperor was a godlike deity figure to them. That was the one thing that they wanted to maintain was to keep their emperor. And with an unconditional surrender that was demanded, that was not going to be allowed. So that was... It was sort of like forcing the situation to become so catastrophic. And then also, another issue was Truman had inherited the presidency from FDR dying. And he was going up into a time of being elected for the, you know, officially. And I think people are familiar with the very famous newspaper headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, because it was thought that he was going to be resoundingly defeated in one of his uh, later elections. He was not a very popular man. And so it was almost a political move to shore up his election bid in lead up uh, to the elections. I think that um, in 48, maybe I, I don't have like the full details on this. The bomb was dropped August 6th and then the second one on the 9th of 1945. And I think FDR had died, what, four or five months prior. So anyway, it, it was a way for Truman to beat be tough looking and electable. You know how they said that Trump wasn't presidential until he dropped bombs in Syria. Right. So, yeah, you know. there's a well there's a you know there's a long-standing tradition in human history, I think, of allowing your opponent or your enemy to save face and not necessarily completely humiliate them. I and mean, when you do humiliate humiliate them like like the allies did to Germany in the Treaty of Versailles in World War 1, you essentially get like this, you know, this armistice instead of 20 year armistice instead of like a true peace and i know japan hasn't then turned around and started world war three but we've also had massive military occupation of japan ever since world war ii but yeah how how much quicker would they have surrendered had the u.s allowed them to save face 
and not demanded that unconditional surrender. Now, I know the, um, I don't know if this is like an ex post facto justification or if at the time they were discussing it, they probably were discussing it at the time. But one of the one of the reasons they talk about how dropping the bomb was this fantastic thing was how many American lives it saved in a potential land invasion where they're saying that, yeah, in order to force Japan to surrender, you have to invade it and, you know, take over the capital and whatnot. And at the time they were talking about like a half a million lives being saved but lately they're talking more like yeah maybe more or less like 50,000 now yeah 50,000 versus a couple hundred thousand Japanese dead I'm sure you know there are many rah-rah America first people that are going to be like great kill them all if it saves one American life but it really kind of shows I don't know it just seems like you know dropping the bomb is like this big dick move (laughs) and we're showing how how awesome we are and we're just going to humiliate these people and massacre them and butcher these innocent people yeah, well, it was certainly a dick move. I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. This is, it, it gets so messy. Because at one point, you know, they're probably one of the most militant people in human history, the the 1930s, 1940s Japanese. And they're the most gung-ho, pro, you know, rah-rah, emperor, rah-rah Japan. So you could make an argument for, you know, every one of them being essentially a potential enemy. Yeah, yeah. But they're from, all going to... What I understand, there, that there was a lot of imperialism in Japan in the 1920s, 30s, and, and early 40s into Manchuria and, and other islands um, in, the, in their sphere of influence, and or, yeah, their sphere of influence. And that's, I think, one of the things that gives uh, maybe the connotation of the correlation with imperialism and capitalism as getting natural resources and markets and, and things like that, you know, like the, the socialist critique of capitalism. You follow, you follow what I'm saying? Like, like oh, yeah. At Japan yeah, yeah. As an if you're example, even just trying like, to get rich, right? You're justifying any kind of imperialism. Right, right. When when trade and, and voluntary exchange would have been multiple times more beneficial. Absolutely. But I was watching yeah, the because Ip, when... Ip Man um, trilogy a while back, and one of them is, is based on the Japanese having invaded uh, hit the area where, where Ip Man lived. And yeah, they were horrific occupiers. You know, um, and and there was a lot of racial tension between Japanese and Chinese during that time. In fact, I've heard, and I don't know if if this can be corroborated, but that that Asian people are often more racist, or some of the most racist people around. That might be a bit controversial, even just posing it, but I have heard that. Well, and from what I understand of history, the the Japanese were propagandized to an incredible degree, and they thought of you know, the Chinese people as these subhumans. And that essentially led to the rape of Nanking and other atrocities. Um, I forget the name of the unit, but there was also a special kind of Joseph or um, like a Mengele type unit for the Japanese during uh, the Indochina War and leading up and into World War II, um, where they performed all kinds of horrific experiments on, you know, putting people in freezers and submitting them to hypothermia and just diseases of anything you can imagine and gases and chemicals and just you name it. And there's some atrocity about it. I, I forget the name of the book that I read, and um, I think it's just the name unit, and I'm blanking on it, so I apologize. But if you if you want to hear about this stuff, there is a it's fairly well documented. Um, but yeah, the Japanese, and you know, I'm sure there's plenty of racism to go around. But you know, in order to in order to you know cut the head off, you know, someone you've never met before, in order to you know horrifically rape and murder somebody you've never met before, in order to you know 
just massacre people by the hundreds. You really got to see them as less than human. And that was very successful campaign. Yeah, that's one of the and, things that that is in the lead up to war is is always propaganda campaigns to dehumanize the enemy, to make them appear less than human. And in fact, and it's kind of funny because now the left is saying that Trump is dehumanizing immigrants and and they're 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 like sort of doing a nod to this sort of thing that leads to atrocities even though they're wrong he's talking about gang members doing gangster shit and how they are acting like animals yet the left turns it around and says oh he's talking about all immigrants so they twist it you know and and they know that they're tack they're they're tacking this onto a very emotionally charged thing that has a historic precedence of when there's an enemy and when atrocities are about to be done dehumanization is one of the initial steps so absolutely i think they're yeah, being yeah, they're, really, tacking it. they're being really dishonest when they do that right they're being incredibly disingenuous but they're not wrong in that yeah dehumanization is the first step but but yeah trump talking about ms-13 members as basically animals is a little bit different than categorizing anybody south of the texas border as an animal i i, I you just don't i don't i don't think he said that but even if he did i mean i'm not a trump supporter i don't i think he's a good person i hate all presidents but he they did lead to a lot of hysteria from you know people in the LGBT you know community, you know immigrant populations that were basically terrified of him getting elected, thinking that they were all going to be deported and or maybe just rounded up and put into camps or whatever. You mean like FDR did, who's one of their heroes? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know history. You know you actually have to pay attention and like understand history sometimes. Yeah. Gotcha, I don't think bitch. It's super popular. <laughs> Anyway, uh, this is a good segue here because, like you just said, we're no fans of Trump. We're no fans of any leader that is a political leader. And just because we're talking about some of the evils that the Japanese had done in Manchuria, you know, leading up to World War II, but also Truman did a very horrific thing. Like, basically, this all boils down to statism and the belief in authority. So those are the issues that bring up all of these evils, right? You can't amass the amount of destructive capacity without this concentration of power in a state, in a monopoly, you know, concentration of power. Um, yeah, but I mean, people, people, you know, think that corporations are going to, you know, form death squads. But, you know, we use it as like a joke because the, the Walmart or the Coca-Cola death squads just aren't coming because the ultimate power in, a, you know, in a free private property based society lies with the consumer. And if you were to walk into a Walmart and there were a bunch of jackbooted thugs, you know, like dressing you down and strip searching you just to get in there. I don't think you'd go there very often. Or if you read about in the news about them, like, you know, murdering a bunch of people, I just I think there would be some protests. I think there would be some boycotts. I don't think, you know, Walmart and all these businesses are at the mercy of the consumer. And they're just you're just not going to see tyranny like this. You're going to get people whining about prices or about how their, you know, service maybe went up like a few dollars or something like that. You're not going to get you're not going to get, you know, wars where, you know, Walmart is going to war against Amazon, you know, with bullets and bombs. You're, you're going to get, you know, price wars where one one's going to undercut the other and everyone's going to get cheaper stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's a bunch of winners in that one. That's right. Yeah, you can be a winner at the game of life. All right, so let's veer this back to the movie a little bit. And earlier you had talked about how war abroad starts with war at home, war against the people themselves. They're stolen from 
via taxation and inflation. They are starved. There's rationing and ration tickets and rice lines, and people are suffering of malnutrition. Um, and in the story here, the mother is pregnant, and she's malnourished. And there's risk of her baby dying before she's born because the mother can't get enough food. And so the children, Gen and I forget how to say the uh, the younger child's name, but their mission is yeah, to I can't, go and get I food. I can't help you. That's right. Yeah, and then, you know, there's intermittent air raids that uh, the siren goes off and people go to the bomb shelters. And then it's either, you know, a reconnaissance plane, spy plane thing, um, but really nothing big. And they, they make note of this in the movie that there's been bombings in every major city nearby, but not here. That seems weird, right? Indeed, yeah. I, I didn't really quite get the significance of that, but I don't know if the, the allies were saving Hiroshima or if there just weren't any like you know military targets but that was the case apparently yeah you know I wonder if it was one of those hey this is still kind of experimental so let's see what just this does versus having you know carpet bombed it already like Dresden or what they've been doing to Tokyo and other other cities you know well there was definitely um people don't know maybe don't know this I didn't know this until I looked it up but there were actually three planes that day there was the Enola Gay which carried the main payload which was Little Boy and then there were two other planes which were just reconnaissance just taking pictures and yeah they were probably I mean they, they basically just were able to photograph you know the mushroom cloud but I'm sure that it was considered a testing site I mean they've already they already detonated one in what New Mexico but this is their first real live fire test and i'm sure they did want to just see what it could do and they found out yes they but, did um, yeah um well b before before we go to that let's talk about the kids a little bit because there was a moment where they wanted to go get a, a carp for their mother who was malnourished because they'd heard from the neighbor that carp's blood would be a cure-all and so they went and stole a fish and the old man who caught them beat the living crap out of them and i was wondering if that was a an over outsized response to the aggression uh what are your thoughts yeah i mean you know i'm tempted to say it's a cultural thing but i can't i, I have to look at it through my own lens and there's i think there's far too many you know cultural things that get they get uh, explained away as well that's just a cultural thing you can't really complain or criticize it I, absolutely you can criticize it um i think he could only you know do what he could to get his carpet back i don't think you can just sit there and just wail on these kids i i think he went i think he went above you know what was justified he can do what he can to get his cart back but you can't just beat the crap out of these kids endlessly now i thought it was admirable that once they explained the situation he was like you know what just take that fish and you know take care of your mom because i think you know maybe if they had just gone and talked to that guy to begin with maybe he would have just given it to him you know here we need our mom needs this food she she could die or she could lose the baby because she just hasn't have any food to eat and he's like well let's let's go pick out a nice plump carp for you then I mean, that might have been a totally different situation. We don't know. But I was I was really taken. And, I, you know, this is a very tearful movie for me. I mean, once the bomb hit and I'm just, the waterworks are just going off for me. But especially later on when Gen, you know, has to his father and his brother and his sister all die under this house fire collapsing house. And he's now tasked with the weight of taking care of his mother and this newborn baby. And he's like, I can do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of you. And he's this kid. And he's like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to go find food. And he does. He finds rice and he finds a job. And they even take on another kid. And it's a really strong emotional thing for me to see, you know, this kid who never asked for any of this, of course, just, you know, didn't, didn't ask to have to grow up immediately. But it's just like, it's on me now. 
I got to I got to take care of my mom. I got to take care of my baby sister. So I just got to do it. And he does it. And uh, it's a real triumph of the human spirit kind of a moment. So I was bawling like a baby through most of the second half of this movie. I don't know how it affected you, but I thought I thought it was just all really well done. I knew that bit would get you when when he takes the initiative on his own to to figure it out because uh, I know you're you're a sucker for that. But um, I wanted to ask also a little bit about the um, the ants because they show these ants acting very strange the day of the bombing. But this is well before the bombing. Now this might be an allusion to animals behaving strangely in an area prior to an earthquake. Though I think that would be completely different because this is a man-made event that was planned ahead of time by maniacal evildoers, not, you know, (laughs) geothermic and and magnetic, uh, you know, natural things happening that animals might be in tuned with. Uh, Do you think that that was just kind of thrown in there to be like foreboding, something like that? I honestly, I was scratching my head at that. I did not. I mean, obviously it was some sort of, hey, these ants are acting weird and they portend ill things to come, but I've never heard of ants doing that. I Like you said, with earthquakes, there are accounts of many animals acting strangely and running away from, you know, like a epicenter. But I've never heard of, you know, ants getting out of Dodge when shit's about to go down. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I don't know about that. That's a new one on me. I don't know if it really happened or if that was just made up. I, I It was just a weird thing. I, I can't explain it. All right. Well, let's let's move on to the dad real quickly, because he did say some some interesting things. And you sort of mentioned it earlier, but he thought that the war would be over soon and that it was all but lost. And then he says this government is run by madmen. And now I'm treated as a coward and a traitor. But if more people were like me, we would it would be more honorable, something like that. Uh, and and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you actually wrote it down verbatim. Um, I did not, but I did appreciate those comments, um, especially at a time like this. I mean, this is all pre-internet, of course. It's it's you can imagine what the propaganda was like. You know, you know, everything's going to hell, and you're losing all these battles. But you probably at the homeland you don't know about it. I mean, you're getting all these death notices. Probably you can't really hide that. But you know, the the losses probably aren't even reported on so how much the people know about what's going on is questionable and to be you know anti-war and to understand that the war is unwinnable and that you're losing i don't know if that's you know a fair amount of hindsight on the part of the creators or not but if he did know and he saw it kudos to him not that it would probably be too hard to see but there are clearly a bunch of other people that had swallowed the propaganda and believed that you know in their immortal victory because really like we'd mentioned before japan's ability to fight the war and prosecute a war was essentially zero at that point they were a completely defeated people they had very few weapons left they had really no fleets or you know really army divisions left you know they had you know supply problems all over and but you know back on the homeland all you know is that you know you don't have anything to eat i Maybe there's some little tidbits here in the newspaper where you're getting some real information, but I kind of doubt it. There's probably just a ton of whitewashed war propaganda talking about the glorious so-and-so fighting the so-and-so doing the so-and-so things. Well, yeah, like so, like we talked about in one of our previous episodes, you got to keep the morale up, right? The morale of the people and the morale of the soldiers and all of that. Otherwise, uh, things kind of go to shit. And they actually make mention of how Japan High Command withheld information about Hiroshima from the public. Uh, so right. even after this happened, the rest of Japan didn't know about it. And then when Nagasaki right, he, happened, then they finally surrendered after that. Right. And even in the movie, there's that scene where, you know, after they, he, the uh, 
Emperor announced the surrender, and there's this family or these man and a woman are walking by the mother, and they're talking about how, how terrible it is that Japan surrendered. I mean, in the face of all this devastation, like their entire lives have been shattered, and they're still upset that the war is over? And at least the mother's like, why couldn't it have been like a couple of weeks ago? Why now? It's too late now. My life is destroyed. But there are still some people who are just so swallowed the Kool-Aid that they can't imagine a world where Japan you know, doesn't fight to the death or Japan, Japan is actually defeated. Yeah, and I can't really get into the mindset, and I think, I think it is a bit cultural. Um, I think in a very general sense that Asian peoples are a bit more tending towards collectivist ideas and thinking sort of like a group think or um, that that the glory of the masses are embodied by the leadership and things like that. Um, but I can't really speak too much to it, but, but that's just sort of like the stereotype that I have. And I don't think stereotypes are necessarily a bad thing. They're like shortcuts of information until you have enough information to make a, you know, a, a more defined, uh, you know, assertion of the situation. But that's just kind of, you know, the... How, how I read it, just in general. And I'm wondering if that is um, changing now or if it's still part of the culture and if it's shifting around at all. I feel like Americans have always, well, always is a tricky word, but the generalization with Americans is they're rugged individualists. And it seems to me that there's a, tr a trend, especially on the left and the statists in general, to become less and less so. Well, you're not wrong. There's definitely a trend to be more and more socialistic and you see that with trends in the popularity of people like Anastasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders and these, you know, the success that they're having with this democratic socialist crap and the idea that, I mean, uh, I forget the polls, but there are a lot of millennials that see socialism as favorable. And that's, you know, part to do with all the Marxist professors and the crap like that and the, you know, lack of basic understanding of basic economics. But I, I also, I don't think you're wrong in saying that if you're talking about general broad strokes, that Asian peoples tend to be more collectivistic. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that any one individual is going to be any less individualistic than any other Western individual. We're just talking in broad strokes here. Um, I do know that the family in the traditional family sense in Asian cultures is a very tight knit unit where, you know, you'll have an entire family essentially under one roof and they will take in and take care of their, you know, aging grandparents and parents instead of, you know, what kind of what we do where we kind of like warehouse our elderly in like homes and keep them away from us and that sort of thing. Not to say that we don't take care of them, but we tend to not necessarily like live with crazy granny as much as like an Asian family would. So that's a great thing, celebrating the, the family unit as a, a unit of, you know, support and uh, cohesion and that sort of thing is, I think, a, a fantastic thing. But, you know, I, I, I don't know if, you know, the continent of Asia, is there something about the continent of Asia that tends towards communism? You got, you know, North Korea, China, Russia. These are places that where communism has really been able to take hold over the past, you know, 120 years. And I don't know if there's something about it as to why. I, I really don't know if, it, if it's the people, the culture, just the, the events as they occurred. I don't know exactly. Yeah, it's interesting to ponder, and, and I wonder if we're interested enough to dig into it further on ourselves. I know my plate is pretty full uh, just in general, but it is an interesting question. Um, now, I think we're running a little bit low on time, so I want to see if we can steer back to the movie a little bit and try to button up uh, Barefoot again a little bit, and then perhaps speak a little bit about The Graveyard of Fireflies if you've watched it recently, because I feel like it's a pretty strong companion piece to Barefoot Gen. Well, it's been a time. 
I've watched it, but I want to say it was a couple of years ago. So if you've watched it recently, I'm sure you would be able to speak more to it. The main thing I remember from the movie is there's like a young boy, like a teenage boy, and he's got this young sister he's taking care of, and they have to live in a cave, and they're just, you know, getting food where they can and struggling to survive. Is that is that basically what happens? Yeah, that's basically what happens, and it's it's a different side of the story in that they, they're in a city that is just bombed periodically just with smaller bombs. Um, but they're still suffering under the total war effort, the war on at home so that war abroad can be prosecuted, you know, the rationing and all the rest. And so I think um, their parents die in one of the bombings. And so they move to this cave and the sister doesn't get enough food and she starts getting re- very frail and very sick. And um, essentially it's just illustrating how much suffering goes on even when you aren't a direct recipient of incendiary devices you know if you're not directly being bombed you're still suffering and the sister ends up dying uh even after the the older brother is able to procure some food for her he as soon as he gives her the food you know that's like her final moment and it is incredibly sad yeah um Absolutely. Yeah, if you get to know those characters. I mean, and these are just, you know, tiny little vignettes of stories that happened all throughout Japan and all throughout countries all over the world where nations go to war against other nations for, you know, bullshit reasons. And they end up murdering their own populations. And you get the, the, the hardcore defenders, even within those populations, like even as they're being starved and even as they're you know struggling to just find, you know, a few calories to put into their mouths, they're still, you know, praising the emperor and praising the military and all these people that are bringing about, you know, your destruction. It's it's. You know, I understand the the pack mentality, the the tribalism, where you know, go go rah rah us. You know, these are our people; they're defending us, that sort of thing. But how do you? I mean, Japan fought a war of aggression, straight out, flat out. I mean, yes, in the in the in the at the uh, at the peace treaty where the um, the U.S. kind of presided over the peace between Japan and uh, Russia around the turn of the century, right before the World War One, there was you know some serious resentment. Um, on the part of Japan, but because they didn't get a whole bunch of like resources, what they saw is basically they claimed Manchuria, kind of like J- Hitler's like Liebenstrau, like we need all the wheat in this area. So we're going to say that this is Japanese area and we're going to go there and we're just going to claim it. And we're just going to basically just take all this wheat and all this food. And, you know, we're going to get all these other resources and we're just going to take all the stuff. Well, of course, that's all immoral and they're attacking and aggressing against peaceful people. But then, and I don't know if we want to get into this, this is probably towards the end of this episode, and we should probably wrap this up. But, you know, leading up to World War II, the United States basically strangled Japan and through all kinds of like embargoes where, you know, Japan basically, I don't, I don't want to excuse Pearl Harbor. I don't want to say that, you know, they an attack on Pearl Harbor was inevitable. But if you're interested in this sort of thing, you can definitely look into it. There are there's a lot of information saying that the attack on Pearl Harbor was known, that it was that it was, um, you know, kind of incentivized and that they that the United States was just looking for an excuse to get into the war. But anyway, I mean, there's a, you know, the old slogan that, you know, when when goods don't cross borders, bombs and bullets do. And I think that's a case leading up and getting the United States into World War Two. Um, anyway, uh, let's talk about this movie. Should, is there anything else do you want to talk about, um, you know, with Grave of the Fireflies or Barefoot Again before we provide our final, anal- or, you know, final wrap ups? 
thoughts? You know, I think we can kind of loop it up in with our final summary and review. Um, and I would just suggest, and this will be mine, um, that both of these movies are definitely worth watching. And, you know, this is the time of year where it's it's the anniversary of the bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so maybe it's a good time to watch these movies. Uh, they're both available on YouTube, and I think you can buy DVDs or Blu-rays on Amazon. And I'll post links to those um, on our show notes page, which can be found at lastnighters.com slash 32. Uh, but just in general, these are very um, emotionally draining films to watch. Uh, they are, you know, anime, like manga-style cartoons, uh, but the subject matter is very, very dark, and the depictions of the horrific uh, violence of the bombs themselves is just a, a sight to see. I mean, it is it is just horrific. Um, so it's a hard, hard thing to watch, but I would definitely recommend it. And, I mean, it's really hard to give a number to something like this. I think that it should... You know, people say things should be mandatory viewing. Of course, as uh, voluntarist types that we are, we're not going to, like, force anyone to do anything. But I would just highly recommend uh, to watch something like this, to see see it as a warning of, you know, this is what the belief in statism yields. This is what is wrought. And so for me, I'm you know, I'm going to go with a nine on this. Just so it's like, you know, up there on the go out and watch this. And I'll pass it to you, Robert. Yeah, I'm probably just going to echo what you said. Um, this is like... I want to show this to everybody that, you know, believes in like statism and like the belief in authority. Like this is, this is what you get, the horrific human toll. And this is, this is just the visible stuff, not to mention the unseen, the stuff that could have happened or would have happened had not all these resources been wasted, all this manpower been wasted. You know, there's that movie, um, Infinity War, where Thanos is like, you know, we need to wipe out half the population of the universe so that the other half of the population doesn't suffer from all these, you know, lack of resources. And he t there's one scene where he's talking to his daughter Gamora and he's like, you know what happened after I wiped out half the planet? And he's talking about all the things that thrived and whatnot. And I would answer, you know what happened? Not a whole lot of innovation. How about half as much innovation? About half as much, half as much productivity, about half as much love and laughter and good times, and a whole lot more sadness and a whole lot more scrimping and saving and trying to scrounge up for a living because there weren't all those people that died providing value to all the other people that were still alive. When you murder hundreds of thousands of people and millions of people in war and waste billions and millions and trillions of dollars, you don't get all the productive things that those people would have done in their lifetimes and their children would have done in their lifetimes. All the things that they would do to serve you, to make products for you that would make your life better. All the innovations that they would have made that would have gone into amazing products that you could use and who knows what, you just don't know. It's all unseen. And all the money that was wasted in all these wars that would have gone to who knows what, just, just live in good life, thriving and multiplying and just being amazing, happy humans. It's just statism doesn't get a bad enough rap. <laughs> it just doesn't in mainstream culture. It just doesn't. People see it as this normal thing that just, it just is. It's just the way it is, man. Just deal with it. Just deal with it. It's just the way it is. And, you know, fight, fight them on like, you know, when they increase taxes or whatever. And yeah, do that. Absolutely. But also understand what you get when you have this belief in political authority. This is what happens. Watch this movie. And I'm not going to even give it a score. Uh, just highly recommend it. Or give it a nine, what the Dan did. It's it's fine. It's, it's less about how good of a movie it is. And it is a good movie. It's more about how important it is. So watch it. All right. Well, I hope that we did it justice uh, a little bit for uh, the victims of this. Um, 
you know, there is blame on multiple sides, but really it all goes to the top, and that is the the belief in authority. Uh, but Robert, I think next week we need to lighten the mood a little bit. So uh, in the pre-show, I think we were talking about doing office space. So if you're down with that, why don't we uh, do a little bit Mike Judge office space? Let's lock it in right now. Office Space next week, guys. Check it out. If you haven't seen it recently, I'm sure many people have seen it. But if you haven't seen it, it's a classic comedy, classic workplace comedy. Uh, Don't see the bastardized made-for-TV edit. They take out, like, some of the songs and just totally ruin some scenes. You have to see the actual DVD. I mean, I know the censored version, you could probably can't even find it these days, but they used to watch it on, you know, show it on, like, TBS, and it's not worth watching. You have to actually see the real movie. So check it out. Office Space. Uh, probably the best Mike Judge movie. Daniel, what would you say? Probably. Well, Idiocracy is pretty good, but... But yeah, Office Space is uh, is right up there. I mean, he he had a couple of dingers there. And you know, speaking of nines, which was the rating we gave to the movie tonight, uh, check out Channel Nine, Peter Man. They're showing uh, they're showing boobies on Channel Nine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're trying to lighten this up. All right, and um, I was thinking about you know we've got that Google Doc of the episodes and movies and things like that, and I think maybe we should resurrect that and sort of plan a little bit more like plan out a little bit more. Like I already know last nighter's 88 needs to be back to the future. And then, Oh, right. Yeah. As we were discussing, you know, V is for vendetta needs to be the first episode in November. Roughly. Um, I think there was a Halloween episode we talked about doing based on, I don't even remember now. Oh, Shaun of the dead. So we have, a, oh, yeah. we have a few that we can sort of like slot in there and then other things we can look at like, okay, what is happening uh, in the movie theaters? You know, can we do a prequel, sequel kind of situation um, or a related film? Like I know there's a new Robin Hood coming out. Um, I think that's in November. Um, so, you know, we kind of plan around those types of uh, events and try to... They're making another Robin Hood? Yeah, there's like nine of them already. So why not, you know, get that perfect 10? You know, it's really interesting when there's like a, a property that is in the public domain and you can see how, you know, everybody just takes their hand at it and tries their hand at it, you know, like with zombies or with Robin Hood or with like, you know, a Bible story. Yeah, or... you get abundance. <laughs> you get abundance. You get all these different options. Yet when there's like this tight, super tight control over a IP, then you get like one movie every 10 years or whatever it is, you know, and you're subject to that one guy's idea of what the movie should be. Yeah, totally, man. I mean, but anyway, uh, yeah, that's what I think we should do is, is get a, a good listing going and, and potentially even make it um, somehow publishable or at least the next couple of weeks publishable. I think that us having announcements of what the next movie is going to be is is helpful, but we could you know potentially have like the next two or three weeks planned out uh, for all to see somehow. Yeah, you know this. You know this, man. You do Friday. Friday, get you high, motherfucker. Yeah, baby. And then, you know, we're also doing the Wild Wild Country. Any more um, info on any other guest type shows? Um, Yeah, so Wild Wild Country is going to be recorded on Sunday and probably come out, you know, shortly thereafter. So people can find that listed at libertyweekly.net slash WWC. This one will be with Sherry Voluntary, who is also on the Launchpad Media with a show called Postcards from Somalia. And she has a a co-host and they have a great rapport. And she's actually said that we have a great rapport, you and I. Um, Ours goes back 35 some odd years. So I think we've, we've invested some time here. 
But anyway, she was in a cult for about that amount of time. Well, I think 20, 20 some odd years. Uh, but she'll have a very interesting perspective to bring to the uh, analysis of the fifth installment of Wild Wild Country. And I think Patrick McFarlane, the actual host of the Liberty Weekly podcast, will be on for that one as well. So that should be a lot of fun. So look for that at libertyweekly.net slash WWC. Very cool. I know I've got a couple couple burning questions for Sherry about her time in her cult. I want to, I'm really interested to hear what her life was like, you know, what her life was like after she left. Was there pressure to stay? You know, how, what was that all about? Cause I know there's a whole, you know, there's the whole ostracism angle. A lot of times when you're in a cult and you leave the cult, I mean, I've seen like, you know, going clear the Scientology. I mean, once you leave, like they people, those people like just dis- disown you. They will not talk to you. You know, you're, persona non grata, which is, you know, really strong. And it keeps people in the cult because, you know, we're social beings and ostracism is a powerful tool. And so I want to hear, I want to hear all about that story. It's, I think it's going to be a really interesting show. Agree. Circle gets that square. Mm, mm, yes. All right. And in other news, uh, there is a meetup of libertarians in Seattle tomorrow that I have been invited to and I'm trying to go to, but the weather is going to turn and it's going to be between... 50 and 70 and rain and potential thunderstorms and this is happening at a beach and it's about five hours of driving if we want to go and do this and so it might not happen which is a bit unfortunate but it's like meeting libertarians out in the real world like anarchist style libertarians is uh is a very rare sight you know it's like looking for um uh, it's like bird watching you see a very rare bird that's what it's like you know seeing them out in the wild like that so Anyway, yeah, I, I I saw that post and I was wondering if you were going to try and make it down for that because it is a very rare event. So yeah, yeah. So anyway, we'll we'll see if if that can happen. Um, it's looking a little iffy at the moment. Uh, I'm in the little group chat trying to figure it out. Well, let's wrap this down. This has been the Last Nighters episode 32. You can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com/slash. 32. Uh, you can find us at the Libertarian Union, libertarianunion.com, and also at the Launchpad Media, uh, where they're always launching new ideas in your direction at the launchpadmedia.com. So thank you guys for joining us. We appreciate it. We'll see you back next week on Office Space, and I'll say good night from last night. And scene. We're back into the actual Anarchy podcast. And Robert, I feel like we veered a lot, but I'm kind of okay with that. Uh, and then we, you know, sort of wrapped it back around the movie. But we had a lot to say, and we went real long. But I think that it was uh, is well done. And I also want to mention that this was recommended by one of our supporters in our actual Anarchy cadre. This was a movie that they suggested uh, as a bit of a tribute to the victims of the um, atrocity that we were talking about. Now, I don't know if we, you know, did tribute level you know like tenacious d you know this is a tribute it's not the best song in the world but the tribute you know what i'm saying i do know what you're saying yeah i don't know how well we did this movie justice but i hope we did um it would have been weird i think to kind of evaluate this movie on like direction and writing and you know voice talent and that sort of thing i i thought it was all well enough done i i don't know if i could even complain about much of it so and, and, and I know movies from the 80s have spotty voiceover quality, but I thought the uh, actors did just fine. And uh, it didn't, you know, get in the way of the emotional, hard-hitting effect of the film. So that's what what was important to me. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we did fairly well. And I, I um, actually skipped over a lot of my notes, but they're just, you know, like this happened and then this happened, you know. like Right, yeah, me too. 
like the old man, um, or not the old man, but the uh, the brother who had been a victim of the uh, of the bomb, and he's like waiting to die in in his um, brother's like outbuilding. And he's like all covered in bandages and maggots, and then he hires the boys to like clean him off. And then he's a total dick to them, and uh, they threaten to leave and like treat him poorly. And he's like, oh my god, thank you for treating me like a human being. You know, hit me again, that kind of a thing. It was kind of bizarre, and we didn't even get into that, but. Eh, people can watch it. They should yeah, watch it. They should. All right. Well, any. Yeah, I don't know what else. Uh, I, I, I was just gonna. I don't know if there's anything else to say. I mean, there's. This is a topic that is nearly infinite. We just scratched the surface of a topic that you know, like Dan Carlin says, you know, where do you start telling the story? You know, this, it, the actual roots of what happened in World War II probably date back, you know, hundreds of years in Japanese culture and in American culture and. You know, it's just a massive, massive tapestry of history that all culminates in this one horrific moment. Um, not to say that it, you know, that it makes the act innocent, but to completely understand it. It's this huge thing. And we just, it's just impossible to tell the whole story in, in, in an hour, an hour and a half. So I would just highly recommend uh, Dan Carlin's history podcast, uh, books like The Rape of Nan King, and um, I'm sure there are a million others, but I'm blanking on all of them. But um, if you're interested in this sort of thing, and I am, but I'm definitely not any kind of expert. I'm more of just like a fan of learning about history and human beings. You know, I'm, I'm like into this economics, you know, human action kind of stuff. You learn about humans by what they do and how they acted in the past is a fairly decent guide to how they'll act under similar situations and similar pressures and that sort of thing today. So I, I dig it. I get into it. And um, hopefully my enjoyment of this sort of thing kind of showed in this episode. Um, but, you know, check it out for yourself uh, if you're interested. Yeah. And speaking of that, Robert, I, I did have a blast from the past this morning. I was chatting with, with a buddy of mine from the Tom Woods group, and uh, he asked if we had ever done V uh, is for voluntary. Is that, is that the right name? For, v is for vendetta. V is for voluntary? V is for vendetta. We we did an episode <laughs> as the Reed Rothbard podcast, and I called it V is for voluntary. That's that's the confusion here. But that was uh-huh. that was about uh-huh. two years ago, and I was like, you know, we're probably wow. we're probably due for doing that again, and we should do it around um, what is it the remember remember the fifth of November or whatever. We should probably do a show uh, on that early November. But um, I did listen to what we had recorded two years ago, and it is actually pretty good, man. Like we were far more intellectualizing, um, and. I think this was partly due to I had a lot more time to like be listening to lectures and reading. And so whatever I was into at the time was kind of rubbing off into the show content. And then we also took on uh, The Conquest of Red by Peter Peter Kropotkin and undressed that a little bit. Uh, This was the time where you were talking about the coats and how, oh, you see those coats over there? Just take them. They're not using them. Oh, yeah. Good, good times. Good times. There's enough coats for everybody. Not that that would destroy any incentive to make more coats. (laughs) <laughs> right, yeah. So it was it was a super good episode, actually. I mean, the audio quality suffers a little bit just because it's our older recording methods and and technology and all that. But um, I'll post that on the show notes page here as well because it's you know if if you like what we talk about and if if you dig us at all, um, harken back to our days when we were far more uh, intelligent sounding. So. <laughs> That'll be posted down below on the show notes page at actualanarchy.com slash 89. That's that's funny that you bring that up just because now that you mention it, I do remember that you used to reference lectures a whole lot more than you do lately. You, you pretty much don't do that anymore. Yeah, I don't know if... Probably because, yeah, you're just... You're just not listening to them these days? Not not nearly as much. And, and I always thought when I did it during shows back then was that I was sounding like this um, smart ass, you know, like know-it-all. 
motherfucker and that it was like maybe a little off-putting but listening back to it now i'm like oh yeah that's a good point oh yeah that reminds me i do want to check that one out or whatever you know like or i might have actually learned something uh where now i'm just it's, it's weird because and and i swear we're gonna wrap this move or wrap this show up but it's weird now because um now i spend my time like actually taking notes on watching the movie and in a you know and before we were far more spontaneous and it was just whatever was going on whatever i had been exposing myself to and whatever you had been exposing yourself to we would just have a conversation and then the movie would sort of like drift in and out of that conversation and in a way i like that uh, a little bit better i'm looking back on it fondly whereas now i actually prepare for the show i take notes and i pay attention and i do the whole thing and i feel like the spontaneity isn't there as much and so maybe it suffers a little bit in comparison well, I do really appreciate, I like when we, you know, go down tangents and talk about the surrounding world and that sort of thing. But I do remember always appreciating when you would bring up, you know, some point about from a lecture that applied because you were, you know, this is all highly specialized knowledge and there's a ton of it to learn. And you would learn, you know, listen to one thing and something I hadn't heard. So I was essentially learning as I was listening to you, you know, kind of learning on the job. So that was always that was fun. And now you, you don't say anything. You're just a big dummy. So. <laughs> oh, that, that, that. oh, yep. yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, thank you, man. Thanks. I, I really do appreciate that. It's uh, really coming. Yeah. You've, coming you've really gone heart. downhill, Daniel. <laughs> it's, it's probably because I, I ticked that odometer over to 40 and now it's like, it is all yep. downhill, a steep, steep decline here into the abyss. Oh, well. All right. Well, I will post that on the show notes page and you guys can hear how smart we used to be. And who knows, maybe we'll start changing things up again and, and get that spontaneity back. Maybe I'll uh, try to find that that fire, that magic that I had had years ago. Um, but yeah, if you want to hear more about what we, uh, our stuff, you know, what we talk about, uh, we do some pre-show and post-show stuff. Post-show is called Kathleen Turner Overdrive, and we do that for our Patreon supporters. So if you want to get a piece of that, go to actualanarchy.com slash Patreon and support us at, I think, the $5 a month or more level. And oh, one other thing, and I'll put this in the Patreon. Uh, we are going to do another ad in the centerfold of the Voluntarist comic that's coming out. So I'm not going to reveal the art concept just yet to the public, but for our Patreon supporters at the $5 a month or more level, I'm going to put it in there. So if you guys want to get a sneak peek of that, um, Robert, does that have your seal of approval? It does. It, I was pleasantly surprised by not only the concept, but also the execution. So uh, yeah, big kudos. Big kudos from here, buddy. Usually I'm the guy that handles the art chores, but I think you, you pulled this one out. Yeah, and it was surprising because I just had like the concept and I was like, all right, I'm going to mock this up, send it to Robert and be like, all right, this is what we, this is what I'm kind of thinking. What do you think? Now make it. And then I sent it to you and you're like, yeah, just do this one thing here and it's good. <laughs> so there you, yeah. there you go. Yeah, I mean, I could, I, I could, yeah, I could probably spend a couple hours and dressy it up or something, but I don't even know if I'd make it significantly better. So, you know, I think you did a great job and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it in print. It'd be fun. Yeah. And if you guys want to get um, the, you know, the first uh, issue of this or, or as soon as it comes out, um, I think they've got an Indiegogo campaign for the Voluntarist comic um, or you can go to volcomic.com and um, find out how to how to order that. And then if you support us at Patreon, uh, you'll get a sneak peek of our ad, which I think is is pretty cool. Uh, and if you want any other ways to know how to support us and what we do here, you can go to actualenergy.com slash tip jar. And uh, I think that's about it. We should probably really wrap this up. We've been going for, for quite a long time. And let's get into some Kathleen Turner overdrive if you're cool with that. Yeah, buddy. Let's let's make that happen. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you all. Check us out next week. Office space. Maximum freedom, everyone. 
the chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do